Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. G'day Tony and hello everyone. Lovely to be with you again for another episode of Australia's Future with uh, Tony Abbott. As always there is much to talk about and I'm looking forward to our chat um, today. Uh, There are two big topics uh, that we're going to discuss. Uh, The first is the Uh, policy suggestion of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And Tony, you had a very important uh, op-ed published early this week in The Australian about the voice and about issues facing Indigenous Australians. And also, Tony, we're talking today as our energy system continues to deteriorate, and we will discuss that and a recent poll that we put out on Australians supporting nuclear power and what the way forward is for our nation. And at the end, uh, Tony is also going to provide some of his reflections and assessment on the shadow cabinet announced by Peter Dutton in the last couple of days. So to begin with, let's talk about the Indigenous voice um, to Parliament. Uh, You've had an opinion piece, as I mentioned earlier this week, on the the drawbacks of that. Um, But before we get into the ins and outs of the proposal Tony, throughout your public life and including your time as Prime Minister, you spend a significant amount of time every year in Indigenous and remote communities around Australia. Um, Can you give us a bit of an assessment and understanding of what is it that you learnt from spending time in these communities that helped inform your assessment of the policies? Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, Yes, I did try to spend uh, about a week a year on average, in remote Australia for most of my time as a Member of Parliament. And certainly uh, uh, in 2008, when I was the Shadow Minister for, amongst other things, Indigenous Affairs, I spent about three weeks up in Cohen in Cape York uh, as a uh, teacher's aide. Uh, Then the following year, I spent about 10 days in Arakoon as a kind of a truancy officer or an assistant truancy officer. Uh, Then... uh, Um, I spent a bit of time uh, as opposition leader on Noel Pearson's home builder plan. I spent a bit of time in Arakoon again uh, doing a renovation of the school library. Um, Then as Prime Minister, I spent a week in East Arnhem Land in 2014 and a week in the Torres Strait in 2015. And then as a backbench member of Parliament, uh, I spent a week, uh, two years running um, up in the Kimberleys. So, look, I, I've I've done my best not just to talk the talk but to walk the walk as well. And when you actually go to remote Australia, you find a lot of wonderful people, uh, but particularly in the remote and isolated places, you find enormous dysfunction because there's no real economy in these places. And when people have got nothing to do but they're gathered in rather large numbers, it's not surprising that they end up uh, uh, drinking too much, um, sitting around too much, uh, getting up to mischief. And that's why the mantra that I developed as Prime Minister was that we had to get the kids to work, 
uh, we had to get sorry we had to get the kids to school we had to get the adults to work and we had to keep communities safe because without educated kids without employed adults and without safe communities almost inevitably you're going to have massive family dysfunction and people are not going to have the equipment needed to live a decent life in modern Australia so that's that's what I came to now I'm all in favour of suitable Indigenous recognition in the Constitution. I think we should be big enough to acknowledge that it was a blind spot of our forebears. Uh, they were pretty much oblivious to Indigenous Australia. They thought in Indigenous Australia was fading away. Well, it, it didn't and it shouldn't. Uh, and it should be acknowledged suitably. But we've got to make sure that we don't let an abundance of goodwill cause us to do things that might in the long run be counterproductive. And the problem with the voice is that it's one of those things that seems like a good idea at the time, but on reflection turns out to have a whole lot of complications and difficulties which probably uh, make it unsuitable as uh, as a long-run constitutionally entrenched uh, way of helping Indigenous people. There's essentially three issues as I see it. Uh, First, there's the detail, and no one should ever vote for anything unless they know the detail. And I think what the new government wants us to do is to vote for the principle and then let them work out the detail afterwards. I think that's a very bad way to proceed. Uh, Second, there's the likelihood that any Indigenous voice will make our already gummed-up government even more difficult and constipated. Uh, The government has to get its legislation to the parliament and as we know, uh, governments tend to have narrow majorities at best in the lower house these days. It's then got to get its legislation through the Senate where governments almost never have a majority and um, I think the Senate's going to be even more difficult uh, in the future than it's been in the past. If governments have also got to navigate Uh, an Indigenous voice which theoretically has only advisory power but which in practice may well end up having what amounts to a veto power like the other houses. I I just think this is a a big step into a legislative quagmire which I think we should be very reluctant to take. The final issue with the voice is um, do we really want to entrench a race-based body in our constitution. Now, I absolutely accept that the intentions are benign here, uh, but do we really uh, improve malign discrimination uh, by substituting benign discrimination? Um, Surely the important thing that our culture and our civilization has been grasping for for centuries is to avoid discrimination and to treat everyone equally. But plainly, if uh, Indigenous people, howsoever determined, are to have an extra vote for an Indigenous voice, uh, plainly that's uh, not equal treatment. And, And so I think there are all sorts of issues here. Now, uh, maybe uh, the new government uh, and the Indigenous leaders who are in favour of this 
will be able to come forward with something which puts all of these anxieties at rest. But I think we're a long, long way from that. And given that our Constitution has, on balance, served us extremely well for more than 100 years, we should be very careful about tampering with it. And that's why my own preference, uh, when it comes to Indigenous recognition, would be to include um, um, some extra words in the preamble uh, to establish that the one indivisible federal commonwealth that we established under the Crown was in fact creating a nation with an Indigenous heritage, a Mm. British foundation and an immigrant character. The beauty of that formulation is that I think it's true. We do have an Indigenous heritage. We did have a British foundation. We are overwhelmingly an immigrant nation and that has stamped our character as a country. So it's true and it's also got something for everyone. Uh, And how much weight you put on uh, any of the three pillars is obviously up to you. Mm. But nevertheless, there would be officially sanctioned, as it were, uh, officially enshrined, as it were, um, by public acclaim, should this happen, as it were, this shorthand description of Australia uh, as a country with an Indigenous heritage, a British foundation and an immigrant character. So if Americans might describe themselves as a melting pot, Mm. uh, talk about give me your poor, your huddled masses striving to be free, uh, as the Statue of Liberty so famously says, we'd be able to say, well, actually, uh, our way of doing it is uh, we've created this wonderful country with an immigrant character based on an Indigenous heritage and a British foundation. Mm. I think that's a a good way of of putting the long history of our continent and how we all link together and how we're all here, so we all need to get along. And I think you're 100% right on the on the issues of the voice. As I see it, the main challenge is it would divide us by race mm. and it would do so permanently. Mm. And it's also quite retrograde. If you think about what happened in 1967 with the referendum that was held, over 91% of Australians voted to remove references to race in our constitution so Indigenous Australians would be counted as equals. Now, as you identify, the proposal is to reinsert references to race um, in our constitution. One of the questions I'd like to put to you is, from my perspective, the building blocks of a functional, dignified life are not contingent on the colour of your skin. Mm -hmm. So you need, as you say, safe communities, economic opportunity, education, access to basic amenities and services. Um, That applies to you whether you're Indigenous, whether you're immigrant, whether you're a seventh, eighth generation European, Australian. It doesn't matter who you are. Those are the fundamental building blocks. And I'd like to just quote to you from your your article, I think a really important point, which is you say, Indigenous people are often caught between two worlds. And I quote, striving to keep in touch with one while succeeding in the other, end quote. Um, can you elaborate on what you, what you mean by that? Well, this was a phrase that was first used to me uh, back in Hopevale in the early 2000s when I went up there as employment minister in the Howard government. Um, for the last uh, seven or eight years of the Howard government's life, Uh, different cabinet ministers were given whole-of-government responsibility uh, for trying to ensure that federal and state government services were effectively delivered in different parts of the country where there was a lot of Indigenous people. And so I had whole-of-government responsibility for Cape York and I can remember going up there 
I think it was in late 2001, to meet with the Town Council of Hopevale. I think um, I also spent a bit of time with Noel Pearson on that trip. And I think it was the mayor at the time who said, look, our people are caught between two worlds. And uh, obviously, the last thing you want is to see Indigenous people losing touch with their own high culture. And one of the wonderful things that Noel Pearson has done up there is uh, he's uh, uh, preserved their native uh, native language. He's, I think, translated the Bible, or at least the New Testament, into the, into the local language up there. Um, but, but having uh, said that you've got to maintain your connections with country and you've got to do your best to preserve the high culture of your people, in the end, we do have to live in modern Australia as well. And uh, at the risk of, of not doing justice to Noel, uh, he talked about Indigenous people having orbits and their orbit might uh, be, in a sense, grounded in Cape York, but there's no reason why the orbit of any particular Indigenous person couldn't take in Cairns, mm. Brisbane, uh, Sydney, New York, London, wherever. Mm. Uh They'd always have, if you like, a, a connection to Cape York, perhaps a spiritual connection with Cape York, but uh, they could go anywhere because they had this grounding in their own culture plus this ability to work well in the wider world. And this is where education is so important. And uh, again, one of the things that was happening in Arakoon when I was there is that um, there was a big effort being made to improve the quality of the school um, in all the usual basics, uh, reading, writing, uh, counting, thinking, uh, familiarity with uh, uh, the, the literature and so on. But then after school, <coughs> the elders were doing a lot with the youngsters to try to ensure that they didn't lose touch uh, with their own high culture as well. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge. And I, I suspect a lot of the, the challenges to that we observe among Indigenous Australians is perhaps not so much attributable to indigeneity but to their remoteness. I suspect mm. if, if you're living in an extreme remote community, um, a lot of the issues that you've identified would probably apply. That's correct. I think this is correct, <clears throat> a particularly a community with no economic base. I mean, as Employment Minister, I also <laughs> went with Mark Latham uh, a couple of times out to Claymore, a housing commission or at least in those days it was a housing commission suburb uh, out near Campbelltown, and it had very, very high unemployment, very, very high welfare dependency, and all the dysfunction that you saw in remote communities was reproduced in Claymore. So dysfunction is not, um, mm. if you like, uh, something that can be attributed to any particular race or culture. Uh, it's a function of... Uh, of, of of funded idleness, mm. uh, uh, to a great extent at least. And and what that's why I keep saying, get the kids to school, gives them a good start in life, get the adults to work, uh, gives them at least some economic independence and some self-reliance and keep the communities safe so that if people want to have a go, they're able to have a go without being interfered with by their by their much more rowdy and difficult neighbours. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to just uh, return to an important point 
that you've made about the the idea of this being a third chamber. Mm. Um, this was, of course, a point made by when I say this, I mean the voice uh, becoming a third chamber. This was a point made by then Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. It's something that's been refuted by advocates of the voice, and I just want to explore this a little bit because, um, as currently stated, although the details are vague, it would appear to be the case that the intent of it is to be as you say, purely advisory, to give their opinions on issues that relate to Indigenous Australians. But I think there's two issues. One is that all policy issues basically affect Indigenous Australians. Tax, welfare, transport, Mm. whatever it is, it's going to affect Indigenous Australians. Um, The second is that the, I guess, the optics, if you like, of a majority non-Indigenous parliament going against the advice of an entirely Indigenous body uh, would be such that the pressure would be for the parliament to conform to whatever the advice is of the Indigenous body. So from my perspective, those are the two two issues. What's your take? I, th- I think they're good points, Dan. The other point to make is that there are now 10 Indigenous people in the parliament. Indeed, uh, Indigenous people are now somewhat overrepresented in the mm. parliament in terms of their uh, presence in the general population And now that we've got 10 Indigenous voices in the parliament, why do we need a separate Indigenous voice to the parliament? Mm. Um, Isn't there a risk that the Indigenous voices in the parliament who are pre-selected and elected in the normal way because they're people who um, are credible with their fellow Australians generally, isn't there a risk that we devalue those normally elected Indigenous voices by establishing this somehow additionally sanctified and hallowed particular Indigenous voice. So, so look, I, I think that uh, notwithstanding the beauty, there is a lot of beauty uh, in the Uluru Statement. There's much to move us in the Uluru Statement. Notwithstanding the beauty of that statement and notwithstanding the goodwill and decency uh, behind uh, the proposal for a voice, it, it's it's very difficult, and I don't believe we should be moving towards this at this time without a hell of a lot more thought. And just, uh, I think one final point I'd like to make and get your thoughts on on the voice is, um, I I've always been troubled by the the idea of there being an indigenous voice, mm. as in sort of by implication that there is an Indigenous view on a given topic, whereas, in fact, there are many different Indigenous communities across the country and they may or may not share similar views on a given topic. And also, I see it as sort of denying the individuality of individual um, Indigenous people within a given community. So I think the risk is that uh, it it becomes seen as, well, there's one view of all Indigenous people and one view of non-Indigenous people and that can be extremely divisive as a, as a nation. What do you think? Uh, again, I think there's much in what you say, Dan. Uh, I, I mean, there's a sense in which Australia speaks with one voice mm. when the government of the day comes to a decision. But the implication is that the Indigenous voice will come to a decision analogous to the decision that the Australian Parliament or the Australian Government might come to. Mm. And again, do we really want uh, to be divided in this way between a Parliament 
and a government which might have one position and uh, an Indigenous entity, um, a quasi-parliament, if you like, that might have a different position, particularly when it's about the things that apply to all of us, not just some of us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So thank you for that, Tony, and I'm looking forward to discussing this further because it looks like Labor is fairly committed to holding a referendum Mm. on on the topic this term, whether that materialises or not remains to be seen, but it's a topic to which I have no doubt you and I will return. Um, So I'd like to turn now to another major issue uh, influencing the future of our nation, which is our energy market. And we've seen over recent days a real collapse of our energy system. Uh, Just on the first day of winter, I thought it was extraordinary that the Australian uh, energy market operator said that we might have to reintroduce gas rationing in response to extreme shortages of supply and pretty significant price hikes. Um, and I think that that portends to a, a fairly vulnerable future of our energy system. One of the potential solutions, although not tomorrow, but over the coming years, is to develop nuclear power, which remains banned under federal environmental legislation. Um, we at the IPA commissioned a poll on Australians' attitudes towards nuclear. And what we found is that Uh, In response to the statement, Australia should build nuclear power plants to supply electricity and reduce carbon emissions, 53% agree, 24% neither agree nor disagree, uh, and 23% uh, disagree. So there was fairly widespread support across um, the community. Uh, To begin with, Tony, what are your reflections and thoughts on that survey and the future of nuclear in Australia? I've long thought that it was a mistake to rule something out on what are essentially theological grounds. And particularly since, as a country, we've committed to acquiring nuclear-powered submarines, I've thought that it makes no sense to have nuclear power at sea while still ruling it out on land. Mm. Uh, Now, I'm not suggesting that we should have nuclear power in this country tomorrow Mm. uh, because it would obviously take quite some time to plan and build nuclear power stations, even though the development of these so-called small modular nuclear units, a kind of land-based version of the units that you've got powering nuclear vessels, uh, uh, would would apparently be easier to do than the traditional massive uh, nuclear power plants. So, so look, I, I'm um, very much in favour of uh, removing the nuclear prohibition. I'd certainly like to see different people come forward with proposals for nuclear power here in Australia. But in the meantime, we've just got to keep the lights on. And that means um, trying to keep our existing gas, uh, our existing coal fleet yeah. operating uh, at full efficiency. It means uh, opening up new gas fields as quickly as possible uh, because uh, if we do have to move uh, to a Uh, carbon-constrained future, uh, as we're so often told, gas uh, is uh, better, in inverted commas, from that point of view Mm. than coal. Although, if you look at what's happening in India and China and places, coal is going to be our energy mainstay for many decades to come. So, so look, um, we we shouldn't be uh, ideologically opposed to nuclear. Uh, We do have to keep the lights on. Uh, That means... Uh, keeping our coal plants going. It means getting more gas into the system and it means properly appreciating that while there's a place for solar and wind, (laughs) 
We need power 24-7, not just when the sun shines and the wind blows. And this has been the problem with our energy system and our energy debate over at least the last decade. It hasn't been run, our power system, to supply affordable, reliable electricity. It's essentially been run to reduce emissions. And the result of all of this is much more expensive power, uh, much less reliable supply, uh, and jobs and industries put at risk. Yeah, I think it's just astonishing that we've got ourselves into this situation as a nation. I mean, this was entirely foreseeable that when we have policies like net zero, which create a disincentive to invest in existing coal stations, let alone build new ones, we've got a range of red tape and moratoria at the state level on exploring gas, we've got the ban on nuclear, and we've had billions of dollars in wind and solar. Now, as you say, wind and solar can top up the system, but it can't provide Uh, baseload power that you need to run smelters and manufacturing and so forth. Dan, again, it's a surfeit of good intentions. Uh, Yes, we all want to save the planet. Uh, And yes, we all want to reduce emissions as far and as fast as we can. But modern life absolutely depends upon electricity. We had a blackout at home yesterday morning, not as far as I'm aware, uh, from uh, the gas crisis. Mm. Uh, More, I think, because we had a high wind strike, Sydney, and I think that, that, that triggered a switch somewhere. And so our suburb was without power for an hour or so. You can't do anything. You can't have a hot shower. You can't turn the heater on. can't even boil the billy uh, because we are completely dependent on power. When South Australia had that statewide blackout a few years ago when the um, wind blew so fast they had to turn off the wind turbines, they'd close down their coal-fired power station and the interconnector, the extension cord to Victoria, broke. So, So for, you know, many hours the traffic lights weren't working, the lifts weren't working, you couldn't do a transaction in the shops because the FPOS system wasn't working. Electricity is at the heart of modern life. We have to have it 24-7. It's got to be as cheap as possible. And all the good intentions in the world can't get us around these fundamental facts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think a lot of people just simply take what we have for granted. Um, But as you say, basically, as time has gone by, more and more of what we do in our life are dependent upon having a system that runs and as soon as someone gets home and the lights don't turn on, they begin to think a lot harder about the situation that can't we're in. can't even charge your mobile phone if no, there's no power system. No, and it actually <laughs> interestingly shows, I guess, an element of vulnerability of, yeah. of modern life in a, in a funny way. Mm. Just one other part of our poll that I thought was pretty interesting is we asked about people's um, political affiliation, their age and their income, and what we found is support was pretty widespread across all different dimensions. So, of coalition supporters back nuclear, only 13% oppose. 52% of Labor uh, voters back at 27 oppose. And this is astonishing to me, 44% of Greens voters support it, only 30% oppose. So more more Greens voters, by a significant margin, support nuclear than oppose nuclear. We've seen developments internationally, including in Finland, where their Greens party has officially ditched its anti-nuclear stance We've had Boris Johnson saying he wants a new plant every year built, uh. similar undertakings in France. I feel that the debate is is shifting in Australia in a positive way. It'll be years before we get to where we need to go, but I think this is pretty positive. Yes, but let's not underestimate how people have been conditioned by years of anti-nuclear. I, I'm, I'm trying not to be pejorative, so I, I won't say anti-nuclear hysteria uh, because... 
the people who have been conditioned by it, uh, they see very reasonable concerns. They're worried about nuclear proliferation. They don't want to see nuclear war, even though nuclear power stations are completely different from nuclear weapons. Um, and and they do want uh, to see our planet um, in as good condition as possible. So, but but we shouldn't underestimate for a second just how influenced people have been uh, by the anti-nuclear climate of the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and by the save the planet uh, climate change uh, worries of more, of more recent times. And you'd think that wanting to reduce emissions would have brought nuclear power back into fashion given that it's the only uh, currently proven form of emissions-free baseload power, but uh, but um, there's still a lot of hesitancy on mm. the part of policymakers. Now, now um, one step at a time, uh, I don't say we should start building a nuclear power plant tomorrow, but we should at the very least look at removing the legislative prohibition so that at least people can start thinking about maybe building a nuclear power plant somewhere, sometime, um, before the lights go out. Absolutely, Tony. Well said, and thank you uh, for that assessment. I thought today we could uh, close our discussion uh, with getting your assessment and reflections on the shadow cabinet that was announced by Peter Dutton over um, the weekend. Of course, you've got a lot of experience in this area of the personnel that you need, how you're going to set up your, I guess, contingency, if you like, in opposition as as the fight now goes into the 2025 um election. So I'd be interested in, in getting your thoughts and assessment on the Shadow Cabinet, how things are shaping up, any any observations in that domain? Okay, well, I have a lot of time for Peter Dutton. He is a, re- a really good bloke and he's a very, very sensible bloke and he showed as Border Protection Minister and then as Defence Minister that he can get things done. And in politics, uh, it's not just about saying the right thing, it's about doing the right thing. And Mm. all the talk in the world uh, is not much good if you can't actually make a difference in practical terms. So so, so I think Dutton is absolutely the right person to be leading the coalition at this time. He's got the character, uh, the courage and the conviction uh, to do it well. And he understands that politics is about creating a contest um, that oppositions uh, do have to oppose um, and that the business of opposition is not just about uh, making compromise with the government of the day. Mm. So he gets all of that. Um, And look, uh, I I don't have anything against any of the appointments. I think they're all creditable appointments. I was pleased to see that Barnaby still has a role on the front bench and I know he'll do that Veterans Affairs uh, role well. Uh, Great to see... Um, Andrew Hastie as the Shadow Minister for Defence. Um, great to see someone who knows what it's like mm. uh, to serve in the armed forces uh, in that job. I was also really pleased to see Angus Taylor as Shadow Treasurer. Now, Angus is um, uh, a very serious political talent. Um, he's uh, very smart. He's a very deep thinker. He's had a lot of experience in business. Uh, he has a very agile policy brain 
and uh, I think that uh, he's going to be uh, very effective in, in that role. Uh, I also noticed that uh, my friend Julian Leesop, former staffer of mine, is now uh, not just Shadow Attorney General, but he's the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Affairs. Now, I know Julian has in the past been quite a supporter of The Voice. Mm. Uh, let's see how things develop there with him. But he's a seriously smart bloke, Julian, a seriously smart bloke. He was the director of the Menzies Research Centre before he went into Parliament. Um, I have enormous respect for him and I think it's a very good appointment. Wonderful. Thank you, Tony, um, for that assessment and thank you again for a very enjoyable conversation today. I'm looking forward to continuing these because, as always with the Labor government, they're very active and there'll be plenty of things happening over the coming weeks and months. So we appreciate your insights and taking the time to continue these conversations. Good on you, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.